How many of you have ever taken that little pill called Airborne? You know what I'm talking about, that, that Airborne pill? It was created by a teacher, a school teacher in 1999. She said, all these kids are getting sick. I want to create something that would be the cure for the common cold. Uh, that's actually what the initial box said, a cure for the common cold. And then it said it was a way to, to boost your immune system. Sounds good, right? Well, this became a multi, uh, it became a hundred million a dollar a year business, selling airborne. Well, after a few years, somebody said, hey, we should actually do a little bit of research and figure out how effective this stuff is. And they said, airborne, the, the key ingredient is vitamin C. And after all the research, they found that there was no evidence that airborne would keep you from getting the common cold. In fact, here's what their science said. The science said that if you got the common cold, you would be sick for like a week. And if you took airborne, you'd be sick for seven days. See what we did there? See what we did there? And so because of this research, there was a class action lawsuit that resulted in multi-millions of dollars being given to people who had taken airborne, thinking it would cure them of sickness, of the common cold. Now, I'm not trying to judge you if you've taken airborne. We've got plenty of airborne in our own cupboard. But you have... Have you ever done that? Have you ever bought a product because you believed the promise that they offered? You know, maybe, maybe you saw this promise of, hey, if you take this pill, you'll have this amazing weight loss. Maybe you bought essential oils thinking it's going to solve all of the world's problems. Like, like you believe the promise of a product, and then you buy the product, and you're like, I'm a little underwhelmed with this. This isn't doing all that it promised to do. You know, when, when we look at those promises, sometimes a broken promise can be pretty devastating, right? The promise to us can be devastating. In a very real sense, when someone is unfaithful to you, when they make a promise and they do not keep it, we begin to lose trust in that person. We, begin to get, we become to get a little bit jaded. We can actually not just lose trust in a person, but we can lose trust in humanity and people around us. In fact, the author Richard Paul Evans he said this, he said, broken promises are like broken mirrors. They leave those who hold them bleeding and staring at fractured images of themselves. Broken promises are like broken mirrors. How many of us walk around in our life, we are unafraid, we're afraid and unable to trust. We are hopeless because someone that we loved Someone that we trusted. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a spouse. Maybe it was whoever it happened to be. They broke a promise to us, leaving us with these broken hands and a broken heart, holding on to, to pieces of a mirror that leave us hurt and jaded and closed off and unwilling to trust people around us. Yeah, we've all probably been there. And let's just have a little bit of real talk. It's easier for us to talk about somebody else who breaks a promise to us. That's easier for us, for us to discuss. We all probably have stories of somebody who has broken a promise to us and it's hurt us. But what about when we break our promises to other people? We don't like talking about that. That makes us a little bit more uncomfortable. The reality is, the reality is, all of us in here at some point have broken a promise that we've made to somebody else. We have proven ourselves unfaithful. In fact, I was thinking about this. My wife, a while ago, she texted me and it's like, hey, 
let's, let's have an at-home date night. You know, let's come, you, you come home from work. When you get home from work, you know, we'll feed the kids and we'll watch a movie and we'll hang out together. And I'm like, yes, we've got five kids. Anytime alone with my wife is amazing. And so, and so I'm off at work and she texts me and she's like, are you coming home? And my response was, I'm on my way. Now, I didn't realize, but did you, did you know that I'm on my way can mean multiple different things? Like for me, when I text it, I'm on my way, that means like I'm finishing up my work, I'm cleaning up my office, I'm gonna go and say goodbye to all the people that are there. Like I'm, I'm, I'm on my way to get there. And to, for some reason, my wife thinks on my way means I'm in my car driving home. So I get home and it's like an hour later and she's got her footed pajamas on, she's got her headphones in, she's like, see ya. And I'm like, what, what, what about our date? And she's like, you lied to me. I can't trust you. And I'm like, all right. I deserve that. Absolutely, I, I, I deserve that. I don't deserve to snuggle on the couch with her. But isn't this how our relationships work? Isn't this how our world operates? Our world operates where if you are unfaithful to me, then I have every right to be unfaithful to you. If I don't keep my promises to you, then you don't have to keep your promises to me. That's how our world operates. This, I guess we're in the spring. This spring, we started a new series called The Story, where we're trying to look at the Bible from the beginning to the end and see how every story, every event, every character, every promise in the Bible is pointing us to Jesus. It gives us the ability as Christians to read Scripture and understand the big story of Scripture is not about us. It's about Jesus pointing us to a relationship with him. So we've been through Genesis 1 through 11, and we saw that this is kind of the foundation for Scripture. And we saw in creation that God had these intentions for the world. And we saw in Genesis 3, the fall of man, where sin begins to disrupt the way that God intended things to be. Then we saw the, the, the story of the flood and Noah. We saw the story of the Tower of Babel, how sin just continues to multiply and reign supreme in our world and in our hearts and in our lives. And today, we're in Genesis chapter 12, where God begins his work to redeem humanity, to show us our need for Jesus. And in this story that Jake read for us, a portion of it earlier, we see that God made this promise, this beautiful promise to Abraham. And what we're going to see is despite Abraham's unfaithfulness, despite the fact that Abraham does not remain faithful to God, God chooses to remember and be faithful to his promise. So here's our, here's our context. Remember if we were, remember where we were two weeks ago in Genesis chapter 11. Uh, humanity, mankind, we wanted to build a city. We wanted a city that would fulfill our deep longings for security and safety. And so the people want to build a city, and then they want to build a tower. And the tower is to build, show their significance. They want to say, hey, look, we matter. We're important. Look at us. And God looks down and says, we got a problem. These people are trying to do these things. They're trying to find security and safety and significance apart from me. And so God, in his graciousness, he disrupts their plans, confuses their language, and scatters them across the world. And in the very next chapter, I love this, very next chapter, says, chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land of the I'll show you. And here's, here's his promise in verse 2. 
I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And you, all of the families of the earth, will be blessed. See, what happens in Genesis 11? Mankind is trying to pursue those things for themselves. Hey, we're going to find significance. We're going to find security apart from God. And God disrupts that. And the very next chapter in Genesis 12, God says, here's what I'm going to do for you. If you trust me, if you follow me, I'm going to give you security. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to give you significance. I'm going to, I'm going to cause the world to bless you. And through you, the world's going to be blessed. It's like the exact reverse of Genesis 11. Instead of us trying to achieve this on our own, God says, now this is what I will give to you. By the way, as we look through this text, we're going to see the word Abram. This is the same person as Abraham. Later, God's going to change his name, so I'll probably use Abraham because that's the one we're more familiar with. So God makes this promise. And what was Abraham's one responsibility? What was Abraham's responsibility? Simply to follow God. It was simply to trust God. By faith, to, to follow him. And what makes this promise from God so much greater and more special is Abraham at this point is 75 years old and him and his wife Sarah they don't have any kids they've waited this whole time and then God makes this promise and says I'm gonna make you a nation you know what that means God just said I'm gonna give you children I'm gonna give you a child can you imagine the excitement that would have been over Abraham and Sarah like we've waited all this time for kids and now God made this promise you're gonna be you're gonna have all these kids can you imagine, like, how would you feel? Like, you'd just be, you'd be giddy. And of course, you'd think, if I'm Abraham, that promise is too good to resist, right? Like, of course I'm going to be faithful to God. Of course I'm going to follow after him. He gave me this promise of, of a child. But that's not exactly what happens. Because of later in chapter 12, they arrive in this promised land. They arrive in this land, and instead of finding abundance, they find famine. And they can't feed their, Abraham can't feed his family. He can't feed the animals. And so rather than trusting God to provide, Abram says, I'm going to run down to Egypt. I'm going to go to Egypt, because there they have grain and they have food, and I'll be able to take care of my family. And when he gets into Egypt, he sees Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is a powerful guy, and he thinks Sarah, you know, she, she's, a, uh, she, she's a 10. And so Abram, out of fear of Pharaoh, says, well, this isn't my wife, this is my sister. And Pharaoh takes Sarai into his harem. And you're like, Abram, you were supposed to be faithful to God and trust in God and now you're coming up with this horrible lie and you're sending your wife to go live with another man? You're kind of like, this is not what I expect out of Abram. Like God gave this promise to him and here he is lying and, and in sin. And I'm like, what about the promise of God? Well, by God's grace, by God's grace, he saves, God saves Sarah before she marries, marries Pharaoh. And there's this great story, and, and they go back to the land, and you're kind of like, all right, here we go. I get it. You think, about, you think about the promise that God made. Does God still have to keep his promise? 
Abraham was not faithful to him. Abraham took off and said, God, I'm not going to trust you. I'm going to go to Egypt and I'm going to make this up this horrible lie because I don't trust you to provide. Of course, we'll say, well, God, he's off the hook. But that's not what God does. Kind of like that idea, you know, fool me once, shame on me. God's like, all right, Abraham, I'll give you another chance. I'll remain faithful to you. I'll give you another chance. And so the next couple of chapters, chapters 13, 14, and into 15, you see God, he's growing Abraham's faith. He's trying to grow his faith in him and gives him another chance and and continues to remind Abraham of the promise. I've made this promise to you, Abraham, if you trust me. And that's where we, we turn to chapter 16. Chapter 16, the story takes another turn. It says in verse 1 that Sarah had not borne Abraham any children, yet she had a servant named Hagar. And she said to Abraham, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, so why don't you go into my servant? And then I shall, be, I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of his wife Sarah. And after 10 years in the land, Sarah gave, Sarai gave uh, Hagar the Egyptian, her servant to Abraham as a wife, and he went into her and she conceived. 10 years. 10 years since God made that promise. 10 years they are waiting for the promise to come. 10 years they're waiting. God, you promised a child. We don't really like waiting. And Sarah's kind of like, God, God, where, where are you? God, you made this promise to us and, and we followed you to this land and we did this stuff. So God, where are you? Why aren't you fulfilling your promise? She thinks, you know, maybe, maybe God needs a little bit of help. How many of us think God needs help? We do that in our lives just like she does. And so Sarah and Abraham, they decide to take matters into their own hands. And because God has not given uh, Sarah this child, she's going to provide her own child. In fact, if you look in verse 2, the exact wording is, she says, I shall obtain. I'm going to do this. This is my own strength, my own power. I'm not going to trust God. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Again, how, many, how often do we do this in our lives? Where God says, hey, I'm going to provide for you. I'll take care of you. But we doubt God's ability to provide for us. And so we, 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 we cheat, we lie, we steal. We, we, we bend the rules because I've got to provide for myself. God says he will satisfy the longings of our heart. He knows what we want. He'll satisfy that. But what do we do? We look and say, well, God, you're not doing it the way I want you to do it. And so on our own, we start looking for satisfaction in money and status or through some addiction and some other thing. That is us saying, God, you've given me this promise, but I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to try and achieve what I want apart from you. That's exactly what Abraham and Sarah are doing. And again, I think about, man, remember all God asked you to do. God gave this promise. I'll make you a nation. I'll bless you. All you have to do is have faith in me. Have trust in me and follow me. And what do they do? The exact opposite. They sin. They show their unfaithfulness to God. I mean, we, and when we can picture their minds, we can picture them just saying, uh, you know, God, I just wasn't sure if you were going to come through. God, we're, we're getting older. God, you're not moving fast enough. How many of us have ever said that? God, you're just not moving fast enough. I want things to go forward and forward and forward. And rather than believing the promise, 
They choose to take their faith and trust and put it in themselves rather than in God. In fact, the rest of Genesis chapter 16, because they have chosen to sin and taken matters into their own hands, you see this ongoing relational conflict. There's this conflict between uh, Sarah and Abraham. And it's kind of a really funny story. It's really like a life. You see this, uh, she says to do this and he does it. And then she's like, what have you done? And we're like, man, this is where from the very beginning, men have a hard time understanding women. It's just one of those stories. And then there's this tension between Sarah and, and, and Hagar. There's this contempt and disrespect shown between the two to the point that Sarah ends up beating Hagar. And Hagar ends up running off with her son and they flee the land because of the mistreatment that they are receiving from Sarah. But here's the deal. Hagar has a son. She names him Ishmael. But Ishmael is not the promise. The promise was not made between Abraham and Hagar. The promise was made between Abraham and Sarah. And so even though Abraham and Sarah were able to figure out how to get a child, this is not the child of the promise. And again, you look at Abraham and Sarah, they got this promise, and what do they do? They keep screwing up. They keep not trusting God. They keep sinning. And what do we expect God to do? Let me, actually, let me make this a little more personal. Put yourselves in God's shoes. You've promised, I'm going to give you this great thing. But then the person you promised to, they keep remaining unfaithful to you. They keep screwing things up. They keep making a mess. What would you do? What would you do? Surprisingly, God doesn't chastise Abram. He doesn't chastise him. He doesn't say, Abraham, because you've been unfaithful to me, I'm not going to be faithful to you. No, in the very next chapter, chapter 17, God reminds Abraham once again of the promise. He says in, in 17 verse 1, it says, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And it says in verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you through their generations through an everlasting covenant. You see, this word covenant, we could go really in depth into what a covenant is. and the very simplest of terms, a covenant is a formalized vow or a promise. A covenant is simply God saying, I made this promise to you, and I'm actually going to sign my name on the line, that you could hold me accountable to this. God says, listen, if I break this promise, that means I'm a liar. That means I'm a fraud, because I put my name down on paper. And if God does not keep his promise, that would mean God is not worthy of worship, because his name is on the line. And notice, notice, God says to Abraham, listen, this isn't just a temporary covenant. This isn't just a covenant between you and me. He says this is an eternal covenant. This covenant has no end. It does not expire after a certain amount of time. Do you know how amazing this is? Like this is, this is God of the universe. This is the God who created all things. Created the earth and all that's in it. Created all the planets and the stars and everything in the universe. Something like we can barely grasp how big that is. God doesn't owe Abraham anything. Abraham has a small speck of dust on the earth. God doesn't owe us anything. 
Especially because of the fact that Abraham hasn't shown himself faithful. But this is what God does. The creator of the universe, he bends himself down, down to Abraham's level. This is what God does. He comes down to our level, humanity. And he says, I'm going to make you a promise. And I'm going to put my name down on it. My reputation is on the line. Could you just, I want you to grasp this. Like this is the God of the universe. This isn't just, this isn't just, this isn't just like the governor or, or, or some politician. This is God coming down and saying, Abraham, listen, I'm making this covenant with you and I'm signing my name down. I make this promise, I'm going to fulfill it. And the story of Abraham goes like this. That God changes Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham, which actually means the father of a multitude of nations. And when Abraham is 100 years old, his wife Sarah is 90, they've waited for 25 years. Finally, God gives them a son. And Sarah gives birth to Isaac. And Isaac becomes the father of Jacob. And God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And so the fulfillment of the promise comes true that Abraham's ancestors become the nation of Israel. This is the the nation of Israel that we read all throughout Scripture that we know of. And then 2,000 years later, out of the nation of Israel, we get Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, who dies for the sins of the world so that we can be redeemed, so that we can be restored into a relationship with God. And that is the fulfillment of the promise that out of you I will bless all the families of the earth because of what Jesus has done. Listen, recognize like we're trying to tell you the entire story. There's probably uh, 12, 13, 14 chapters that all detail the life of Abraham. And I'm going to try to give you a summary in 32 minutes. But this is, this is Abraham. That despite his sins, despite his failures, despite his unfaithfulness, God is faithful to keep his promises. In fact, here we are, 4,000 years later. There are probably 2 billion Christians that are worshiping God today. They're worshiping Jesus today. Why? Because God kept his promise to Abraham, even though Abraham wasn't faithful to God. And I want you to know, the same thing is true for you and I. In fact, this is a summary of this message. Here's what I want you to grasp. That despite the fact that you and I are unfaithful. Let's just be honest. We are unfaithful. We're not faithful to God the way that we should be. We are much like Abraham. We have some, st- some parts of our life that are really good. Oh yeah, look how great we are. But we're being honest. We've got these other parts of our lives. We've taken things into our own hands. We're not trusting God, we're trusting ourselves. And the story teaches us that despite our unfaithfulness, God is faithful to keep his promises to us. Listen, no matter how bad you've screwed up, or how many times you've screwed up, how many times you've dropped the ball, how many times you've broken your promises, how many times you've proven to be unfaithful, listen, I need you to hear this today. I need you to know this, that God keeps his promises to you. God keeps his promises. You know what the great thing is? If that is true, if God does keep his promises, 
That changes everything for us. In fact, I'd say two points of application for us this morning. Number one, because God keeps his promises, we should be willing to wait on God rather than try to accomplish things in our own strength. Now, again, it's easy to read the story of Abraham and Sarah. It's easy for us to judge them. I mean, like, Abraham, what the heck are you doing? God made this great promise to you, and you can't trust him? You can't trust God? What's wrong with you? Listen, Abraham... They waited 25 years for God to fulfill this promise. We struggle waiting for 25 minutes, let alone 25 years. Listen, there are some of us in here today, some of us watching online. This is where we are today. We're in a season of waiting. We're we're waiting. It's hard to wait. Some of us are here, and we're, we're, we're waiting. We're God, 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 I long for marriage. I long for children. And we're waiting. We long for, for a new career or, or, or for uh, our health to improve, the health of a loved one to improve. We long for a loved one that we love and care for that's often sin, and they're in the far country. We long for them to come home, to come back to Jesus. Yet here we are today. We find ourselves waiting and let's acknowledge waiting is hard. No one understands the pain more than you for what it is to wait. And I'll say this. I don't know why God has you waiting. I don't know why God has you waiting. But I know that God had good reasons for making Abraham wait. In fact, I don't think Abraham was ready for God to fulfill the promise. Because in a very few chapters, God is going to ask Abraham to do some very hard things, especially Genesis chapter 22. God's going to ask him to do some incredibly difficult things. I don't think Abraham was ready yet. I think God said, I'm going to make you wait because I want to build your faith. I want, to, I want to grow your trust until you are ready to handle the blessings I'm about to give you. He wasn't ready for them. Think about this. I think about, I enjoy driving cars. Cars are fun. There's a red Mustang out here. That one is really fun to drive, right? That doesn't mean, just because driving is a ton of fun, that doesn't mean I give the keys to my car to my 12-year-old son, right? Like, that wouldn't be a blessing. That would be tragic, right? I give him a bicycle. I give him a golf cart. Like, let's learn how to do this. Let's, let's grow some skills until you're ready for the blessings of a car. Listen, God, he is your loving father. He sees you. And he sees what you and I can't see from our limited perspective. My 12-year-old thinks he's ready. As well as we all do. God, I'm ready for it. But God, in his great wisdom, for whatever reason, says, no, I want you to, to wait. I want you to wait. And sometimes the answer from God is wait. Sometimes the answer from God is, is not right now. And sometimes the answer for God is no. In fact, God told Jesus no three times. What makes you think he won't tell us no? Remember the story of the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus is about ready to go to the cross, and he's praying and saying, God, God, 
would you take this cup of suffering from me? Three times he prays it, and three times God says no. But because Jesus trusted God the Father, because he loved God, because he knew that God loved him, because he knew that God was working things out for his good and for for our good and for his glory, Jesus willingly went to the cross to die in our place. And God's no to Jesus, it turned into a yes for so many of us that we placed our faith in Jesus and have become redeemed, become Christians because God told Jesus no. Listen, we don't always grasp what God is doing. But I want you to know because God keeps his promises, because God will keep his promises to us, The invitation for us today is to wait, to keep trusting, to keep following, to keep putting our faith in Him, knowing that God is good, knowing that God loves us, knowing that God is working things out for our good and for His glory, even though we can't grasp it because we have these limited 12-year-old perspectives. That's the invitation for us. He's going to keep... So today, we can wait. Second thing this morning, because God keeps his promises, listen, we ought to take a lot of hope from those promises. I mean, I think about these these graduates today, these three young people whose life is in front of them. You know, I look at those young kids, and I'm like, you know what? Go be world changers. Like, go do something big with your life. God has plans for you. I love it, and go do big things. Now, those of us a little bit older, we would say along the way, life gets hard, right? Along the way, life gets difficult. There's sin and suffering and difficulty, and no matter how good you are, you can't escape those things. Those things are a reality. And listen, if that's where you find yourself this morning, feeling the weight of difficulty, of sin, of suffering, of life is hard. Listen, this morning, I don't have platitudes for you. I don't have five ways to make you feel better. I'm not telling you this morning to try harder, to be a better Christian, to go do more. Simply, I want to remind you of the promises that God has made to us. I want to remind you, these are the promises that God has given to us. These things should fill us with hope. I mean, I listed a number of these down. Listen, here's some promises from God. Number one, uh, if you're discouraged and feeling alone today, listen, Joshua 1.9, God promises to be with us always, even to the end of the age. How good is that? Listen, if you find yourself where you're like, man, people have let me down. People have broken their promises to me. Listen, Hebrews 10 says God promises to be faithful to us. Isn't that great? Some of us are like Abraham, and we've sinned, and we've made a mess, and we've screwed up, and we've disappointed God. But Isaiah 54, 10, God promises that he will show love to us and show compassion. Man, how good is that promise? 
Some of us find ourselves where we're wandering through life. We're floundering. We're looking for our purpose. We're unsure of what God wants to do with us. Listen, he has promised us in Ephesians 2.10 that he has a plan for our life. How good is that? When you're hurting and struggling and suffering, 2 Corinthians 1, God promises to give us comfort. When you've been wronged, when you feel others are getting away with all sorts of evil things, guess what? God promised to be your avenger. You don't need Captain America. You need Jesus. This is what he's promised to do. When you're exhausted, physically, emotionally, spiritually, guess what Jesus promised to give us? Rest. (laughs) When the world beats us down, when Satan causes us to doubt the love of God, You know, he promises in Romans chapter 8 that there is nothing, nothing in all creation that can separate us from his love. When we look around our world and we're like, man, this place is broken. It's ruled by sin and devastation. Listen, John 14, Jesus promised to take Christians. He promised to take us to heaven. Revelation 21, God promised to fix what has gone wrong in this world. (laughs) You know, if we actually believe these promises, how good would they be for our soul? How good would they be when life gets hard and difficult and things feel dark and unsure? This is where we cling to these promises. And it's not enough, it's not enough for me to stand up in front of you and say, here's the promises of God, because you know what? Most of us, we have enough head knowledge. Oh, we know God made these promises. But for some reason, there's this huge gap between our head and our heart. For some reason, we can know God says these things, but in real life, it's hard for us to actually believe them and take hope from them. Like, I'll tell you, for me, I struggle. I struggle with self-doubt. I've shared this a number of times. I, I struggle where I feel completely incapable to fulfilling the callings that God has put in my life. I feel incapable as a husband, as a father, as a pastor. There's times I go through some really dark days. Again, this is where I'm a pastor. I've got the head knowledge. I know what God says, but there's a disconnect between my head and my heart. So here's what I have to do. I've found a promise of God that I have to latch on to. A promise that I hold on to desperately. 2 Peter 1, chapter 3. In his divine power, he has given me everything I need for life and godliness. So here's what I've got to do. I don't know about you, but for me, I got the head knowledge. I have to take this promise and cling to it. I have memorized it. I have put it on my desk so that when those dark days come, what do I do? I go back to the promise. And I say, I feel like this, but this is what I'm holding on to. I'm going to choose hope. I'm going to choose to believe. I'm going to choose to hold on to this promise that even though today feels dark, I know that God has given me everything I need for life and godliness. And I journal about that promise. 
and I journal through that promise until I'm at the spot that I can set that dark time aside and just say, all right, God, it's just me and you, and I'm holding on to this, and I'm desperately holding on to this because I need it today. So let me ask you that this morning. What is the promise that you need to latch on to? What is the promise that you need to memorize? That you need to write on your doorpost? What is the promise that you need to tell someone else to say, listen, I'm struggling. Would you remind me of this promise again and again and again? Because listen, God keeps his promises. He showed himself faithful to Abraham. In fact, that is why we're gathered here today because God showed himself faithful. And God is, if he's faithful to keep his promises to Abraham, listen, he'll be faithful to keep his promises to you. His promises, I came to give you life. I came to give it abundantly. So what is that promise for you today that you need to grasp onto? Say, God, here's where I'm struggling. But today, God, this is a promise I'm going to hold on to and not let go of. And I'm not going to try and pursue this from some other way. I'm not going to do my own strength. I'm simply going to put my faith and trust and belief in you. And God, if I'm in a season of waiting, I know there's a reason behind it. That you are still good, that you are still working things out for my good and for your glory. Let's pray.